Hey, we are in chapter 9. Hey, I didn't write this, but it's on page 99. That's right, I'm excited about it. And it is called the Spirit-Filled Life. Okay, and we got to do some uh, cronies theology tonight because I want to lead into this because, man, this is one of those topics that I would say we are extremely guilty of the exciting language called Christianese, as we've talked about before. We got all these terminologies in Christianity, and we say them, and we can quote them, but we have no stinking idea what we just stated, okay? is usually what goes on with those big giant words, sanctification and all that stuff. It's like, that's what? Okay, and this is one of them, I'm telling you, at least I think so, spirit-filled. That's right. Are you a spirit-filled Christian, Shirley? Huh? How do you become spirit-filled, Ron? Ron, if only we knew if you are a mighty Christian, you'll be a spirit-filled Christian as opposed to those non-filled Christians with something inside of them. But, uh, you know, we say that stuff, but we don't know. What are we talking about? How does that work? How does that look like? Well, that's what we're going to address tonight. Now, to cut to the chase, I want to, again, like I've done before in previous studies, I want to give you just a good understanding of, and, and break, before we even get started into it, break away from the Christianese, okay? Spirit-filled. Man, that sounds really exciting. Let's just supplant it for what it is, okay? It is literally the Spirit, every time we're going to read this tonight, it's the Spirit-controlled life, okay? Major mega difference, because when we think of filling, we think of a bucket, and you're filling it with something. It has nothing to do with that, okay? It's literally an issue of control or influence is what's going on there. So if you're going to have a Spirit-filled life, okay, that means the Spirit is controlling you. Okay, is literally what it means. Okay, let's, let's take a look. Am I spirit-filled slash controlled is really what it means. The question above has become increasingly common in Christian circles, and the answer is very important. With such an emphasis on the work of the Spirit in our day, one would think that the doctrine of spirit-filling, i.e. controlling, okay, would have become well-defined. Instead, the doctrine has become more confusing to many Christians because of the wide array of opinions. The problem is that the average Christian's understanding in this area, and dare I say, even of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is God, by the way, okay, it's not electricity or something, uh, is this. It's more from their experience and less from God's revelation on the matter, i.e. from the Bible. Okay, it's about their experience, okay? Increasing numbers of Christians are starting from their personal experience and then going back to the scripture to confirm their experience. Now, that's in practice, in theory, but in practice, that's usually what not it is. And if you challenge somebody and say, hey, listen, that was not the spirit of God. Okay, that's not, there's no way that was from God because that contradicts like the word of God. I kid you not, folks, in counseling, some stuff, people have actually tried to give the impression that, well, you know, I'm married, but I've fallen out of love with my wife and, but I'm okay with it now. I'm having another relationship with this woman and we're gonna get married because the spirit of God told me that this was okay. This kind of stuff happens all the time. Say, Excuse me? I can confidently say, according to the word of God, that that experience was not from God because it's contradicting God's word. But people say that all the time. The spirit of God told me, the spirit led me, the spirit, what? It's got to line up to the word of God. And they say, well, of course that's what we do. But I'm telling you, when push comes to shove, especially if it's something that's appeasing to your flesh, you don't, okay? And again, when it comes to spirit control, i.e. being spirit-filled, it's, it's a whole lot different than what a lot of people think about. It's not about experience uh, of, of your feelings. It is God's word that is our authority, not our personal experience. Thus, we must interpret our experience in light of a clear understanding of scripture. Why is that important? What kind of danger do you think we could get into if we started to define so-called truth, even so-called Christian truth, based on how we 
feel our feelings or experience. What's that? Name a subject. It opens up Pandora's box, doesn't it? Okay, because as feelings are something that's what's called subjective, okay? And it's how do you disprove that? I mean, you could say, you know, Ron was taking a shower and, then, and, and, and he had this vision. He had this vision. Surely it was not the soap that overpowered him, this new fragrant flavor that entered into his nostrils. No, it was truly a vision of God. And this light beam came into the bathroom window and it lined upon his armpit. It activated his arm. And as soon as his arm reached above the cranium of his head, he saw something. Now, okay, I'd say that, yeah, that probably was the soap or you fell down in the shower and forgot about it. Okay, uh, personally, <laughs> okay. But, but it's subjective. I wasn't there, you weren't there. How can I disprove that unless it's obviously counter uh, to the scripture, right? That's the problem with feelings, it's subjective, okay? Okay, the Bible though is tried and true. It's what's called objective, okay? It's either in there or it's not. It either says it or it doesn't. Okay, you can test it. But how do you test somebody's feelings? And see, that's the trickery. Because you're supposed to test your feelings, your experience, based on that which is objective. But again, if it's something pleasing to you, you'll sit there and go, oh no, no. See, you weren't there. See, I was crying. These big alligator tears. It had to be God. Really? The Bible says that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. So you could have, I ain't, I'm not saying you didn't have an experience. But that doesn't mean it came from God. Okay? It could be, you, you, could, you could be in a state of euphoria. See, this is the trickery of the enemy. Sometimes we think they're always going to show up and it's always going to be these 19 demons wah, with these big giant teeth and they got these chicken legs hanging all over them and it's freaking yelling. And we think that that's how he's always going to show up. No, sometimes he shows up and oh, you feel like ecstatic. It's like, oh, I'm at peace. Well, it's part of the deception. And so then we say, well, that had to mean God. Maybe, maybe not. Did you truly do what you said you're going to do and test it according to the word of God? I'm sorry, that was not your Aunt Vera that came and spoke to you. That was a familiar spirit called a demon because the Bible is objectively clear that when a person dies, you either go straight to heaven or you go straight to hell. You don't come back. Yeah, but uh, it sounded just like her. But I, I, I cried when she spoke. She knew. This is the danger that we get into, okay? When you go by experience instead of the word of God, okay? Let's continue on. Thus, we must interpret our experience in light of the clear understanding of the scriptures. So let's do that when it comes to, this is the topic. We took a little uh, rabbit trail there. The spirit-filled life, okay? Forget what you think about it. Forget what you've experienced about it so far in the shower, okay? Let us see what the word of God has to say about spirit filling, okay? Then we're gonna be answering the important question. Am I spirit-filled, i.e., again, what's the context? Controlled. Am I a spirit-controlled person? Okay, now let me give you some uh, crone theology. Now the classic text, and we're gonna see this over on the next page, 100. Uh, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? He quotes Ephesians 5.18, which is one of the examples of how do we define, and that's the issue. How do we define what does it mean? Well, go to the Bible. And here's what it says, Ephesians 5.18. Uh, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. I believe the Greek word literally means like wastefulness. Okay, uh, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, now I'm jumping ahead of myself, but by way of just quickly getting the biblical definition going, it literally means, uh, uh, again, the control or under the influence, okay? And that's the dichotomy that he brings out there. He says you could be under the control of wine, right? I.e. get drunk, and who's calling the shots when you get drunk? It's the wine, right? Okay, or alcohol, whatever. Okay, he says don't do that. 
Don't be under the control. Don't be under the influence of wine, of alcohol. What are you supposed to do instead? If you want to get under control of something, if you want to be influenced by something, it needs to be the Spirit of God. Okay, so a Spirit-filled life is, again, translated a Spirit-controlled life. It's the Spirit of God controlling you, influencing you to do what you're supposed to be doing according to God's will. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. Okay, now I said all that to get this. I'm going to quote to you Kenneth Wiest. Okay, and here's what he said. He says, two of the most serious and harmful statements made by Christians are when they address the Spirit to fall fresh on him or to descend upon his heart. That can only happen one time at salvation. Okay, listen. To voice such petitions is to ignore and deny the plain teaching of Scripture. It is to give the believer the impression that the Holy Spirit is a faraway helper who does not dwell permanently in the heart of the saint, but only comes to his aid when he calls. Do you see the difference there? Thus, the believer does not have the consciousness of the indwelling spirit. It is to ask for the coming of the person of the spirit when what the saint needs and possibly desires is the fullness or full control of the spirit that's already there. Do you see the distinction that we're starting to build here? He says, we must not think of the Holy Spirit filling our hearts as a water fills a bottle or air a vacuum or a bushel of oats uh, in an empty basket. The heart of a Christian is not a receptacle to be emptied in order that the Holy Spirit might fill it. The Holy Spirit is not a substance to fill an empty receptacle. He is a person to control another person, i.e. the believer. He does not fill a Christian's life with himself. He controls that person. And I remember one lady, when I was teaching this many years ago, and uh, she just flipped out when I said that word control. Oh, that's just, God would never do that. That's control. That's mean, as if that's bad. Control. Ha, ha, ha. Let's close in prayer. No. Okay. Uh, no. Uh, really? I mean, think about that. You're under the control of something. You're under the influence of something, right? And this is our battle that we've been seeing. The spirit and the body, you're stuck in the middle. You got influences going on. You got the spirit of God trying to control you. Okay, influence you what to do. Then you got the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to control you. Okay, you're being influenced and controlled by something. If I want somebody and something, if you will, to control me, I want it to be the Spirit of God. Why? Because that's what it means to walk and live and keep in step with the Spirit. You're under His control. And the Bible says when you do that, you experience the fruit of the Spirit, which is really horrible. No, that's when you experience the love and joy and peace and patience and woo! So when you're a Spirit-controlled Christian, when you're under the control of the Spirit, Wow, that's when the power comes. That's when you got the supernatural joy. Why would you not want to be controlled by the Spirit of God? Are, are you saying that, no, I would rather be controlled by the, my flesh, the old man that hates God. And it, no, I'd rather be controlled by this wicked world system that's an enemy to God, yeah. No, I, oh, I just love being a, a, a little tool of the devil. That's, ooh, that's where life is really at. No. Spirit-filled life means to be spirit-controlled, okay? But here's the, here's the dilemma. The believer is not automatically controlled by the Spirit just because the Spirit indwells him. The control which the Spirit exerts over the believer is dependent upon the believer's active and correct adjustment to the Spirit. Can I tell you that? Here's another Christianese phrase, what he just said. That means we are yielding to the Spirit of God. Okay, that's another Christianese. How do you do that? I imagine I'm driving a car. I put the brakes on, I yield. No, that means your attitude is in adjustment and align. When he says go, you go. When he says jump, you say how high, sir. You're in that walking, living, stepping spirit. When he begins to speak and prompts you on the inside, you say yes. Absolutely. That's yielding to him. 
Okay, you're not yielding, i.e. given permission, going into with the flesh, the world, or the devil. Okay, there must be an ever-present conscious dependence upon a definite subjection to the Holy Spirit, a constant yielding to his ministry, and leaning upon him for guidance and power if he is to control the believer in the most efficient manner with the largest and best results. We do not take a drink of water unless we are thirsty, and we do not appropriate the control of the Spirit unless we desire him to control us. Okay? is what he's saying. Now, I'm gonna give you four things, and this is all a precursor into our study, okay? Four things that I believe we miss when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that messes us up from becoming true mature Christians because the path to maturity is right here in this word. Spirit controlled. When you're controlled by the Spirit, you grow in maturity. This is it, okay? But we, we, we miss it all, and so we wonder why we just kind of muddle around in the Christian life. And we don't mature. We stay babies, okay? Uh, here's the first one. One, we act like the Holy Spirit is a force. Right, Jenna? You want to try that? Hey, you did it. Give it up for Jenna. I can't believe you did it. Right on. Right on. Let's go. I have to get some gum later. Okay. Anyway, this is what we do. We have this mindset that the Holy Spirit is some sort of electricity, you know, some supernatural gasoline that we tap into and, and, and that we can live this amazing life and if we just do the right things and whatever. And we, we, we even will do christian statements like, man, I just, I feel like I'm just low in the spirit or a little empty. And it's like, what? What is he, like gasoline or something? And you were going all day pretty good and you just started cutting out on you? No, okay, he is a person. How could I be low in a person that's with me wherever I go? What we might be low in, if we're experiencing a less of his control, okay, it's not because I need more of him because he's already with me. What I need is more yielding and control on a consistent basis, okay? But we act like he's some of this mysterious force that comes in and gets us going, okay? major problem. Second thing we act like, and this is kind of what I was getting into, is we act like he's outside of us. Okay, no, he's not. He's inside of us. He's within our hearts. This is what we saw when we become born again. It's anothen in the Greek. It means born from above, born from a higher place. We were dead spiritually, okay, uh, and that was our separation from God, but when we uh, receive Christ as our Savior, we become anothen, born from above, born from a higher place. The Holy Spirit comes and makes our spirit live again. And that's why we have this intimate relationship with God now, because God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We now have that spirit nature created in God's likeness to commune with him. Okay. And, and that's what we have. He is within us. Okay. Yet how many times do you hear us as Christians act and even sing songs as if the Holy Spirit is not inside of us or amongst us? or constantly dwelling within us. Let, let, let me share with you. Anointing fall on me. Pastor Jim. Okay, this next one. Uh, Father of lights, shine down on me. I, I want to be where you are, right? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Can I ask the obvious question as we sing those songs? Okay, nice songs, bad theology. When did the Holy Spirit ever leave? <laughs> okay, God's anointing will not fall on me, but it will flow through me as I yield under his control, okay? Does God shine down on me or does he shine through me as the Spirit controls me? If I want to be where God is, then shouldn't I simply acknowledge his presence that's already there? And that's another Christianese phrase that we say when it comes to the Spirit. Oh, dude, you should have been there, man. It was just like so awesome. I just like, I, we, we entered into the presence of God. 
okay, when did he ever leave? If I have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is God, when did he ever leave? How did I enter into his presence when he's already there? You might think this is semantics, but I'm telling you, if you don't get the locale and the ministry of the Holy Spirit right, you're not going to get this right, which is the path to maturity. Okay? So how do you enter in his presence when he's already there? Why do we say stuff like this? We act like God is on the backside of Pluto and once in a blue moon, when we're in serious trouble, he shows up. It's not what the Bible says. If we say that the Holy Spirit is welcome in this place, aren't I implying that he left at some point and we're desperately inviting him back? What? What are we doing singing this kind of stuff? Three, it kind of leads into, we act like his indwelling is not a permanent deal, okay? There's, there's a great song out there. I like it, but it's just, again, bad theology, okay? Created me a clean heart. Oh, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Beautiful song, rotten theology. Can the Holy Spirit be taken away from us as a born-again Christian? Uh, no, Pastor, really? Wow, the whole class responded in unison. Praise God we're on the same page tonight. Uh, no, it's a permanent indwelling. In the old, that's the amazement when the church was born in Acts chapter two. The Spirit of God indwelled everybody. It wasn't just for special people in the Old Testament like kings that lighted upon them from certain ministries and prophets and priests and things of that nature. Now anybody can be filled with the Spirit of God and he doesn't leave. Yeah, it's a major thing. It makes me go like that too, okay? But again, how many times do we act like somehow we're gonna scare them away? You ever been into services like that? All of a sudden, it's just like maybe the music has provided an atmosphere that's conducive for us to get our minds on the things of God. So again, then we'll say, well, I've entered into his presence. No, you're starting to acknowledge his presence that's already there the whole time, okay? Anyway, but we'll get there and we'll go like, hey, don't move, Orson. The Spirit of God is here with us now. Whatever you do, John, don't sneeze. Ah, you scared him away. I can't believe it. What's a big idea? Now we're going to have to start all over again. Took 30 minutes of song just to get him to arrive. <laughs> Come on, I ain't got time for that. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's like, what? He, he's with us wherever we go. He's inside of us. It's permanent. We can't scare him away. Okay, which leads to the next one. We act like he can be manipulated. Okay, this is funny. I'll never forget the first time this dawned on me. It was great. I was in between internships, and so part of going to Bible college, you had to have an internship, which I'm very glad for. Now, after graduating, okay, it's like they knew what they were doing. And uh, so I was, I was looking, I was hunting for another internship, visiting churches. We were church hopping, and uh, so to speak. And I went to this one. Sometimes, you know, you'd have to go to a church for about three months and before you kind of get the flavor. And sometimes, man, first time you can go, okay, won't be going back later. And this was one of them. But uh, God was good. I, I learned a powerful lesson, even at a church that I never wanted to go back to again. Okay, and what, <laughs> what I learned was they were up there and they were having, the, the worship team was there and, and the pastor was up there with all due respect, you know, uh, to them. But they were just so concerned that everything had to be, I mean, just, I mean, perfect. And if somebody made a noise or they didn't stop at the right time and it's just like, oh, you could tell they were getting nervous and twitchy, like, oh, we're messing it up or, you know, God's not gonna come and whatever. Then we have to sing this way and this and that and it ain't working and oh, you missed the note and you just, it's like they're getting all frantic and I'm sitting there, I'm going, watching them do this and they gotta you know move like this and play like this and sing like this and you gotta pray like this it was like this formula that was going on and then all of a sudden what went to my mind was an indian rain dance and you know with the indian rain dance what's the whole premise of that which i'm not promoting but by way of analogy right it was like the indians what do they do you know sing 
He went to go around in circles. Should have been Indian or something. Anyway, so I got that one down. But anyway, so... <laughs> Anyway, so they're going around the circle, hey, you know, they're hooping and they're hollering, they're doing their chanting, they're doing their dancing, but there's just somewhat of an order to it. And what's the whole point of them doing it, you know, hour after hour, however long? Maybe it's longer some than others, depending on how well they do their little gig thing or whatever. And the whole premise is to manipulate the gods to bring rain down, right? That's what went through my head. I'm going, is that the true purpose of worship? We got to sing the right thing in the right order and pray the right way, stand the right way, do this. We have this. And every church has got their cookie cutter method, right? And we act like if you got to do this in the right way and this way, and if you got to do this, this, and right, never, because then if you do it just right, all of a sudden, bang, the Spirit of God shows up. When did he ever leave? Do you, are, do you see some of the goofy games we play? I really, ah, I'd love to teach a series or write a book or both or on the Holy Spirit. We are so, it's messed up in the church today. And then you got the other extreme where people abuse, I think, uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit and, and blame on him things that are just absolutely, and sometimes occultic, okay? And then I think what it does is to put a sour taste in people's mouths to begin to deal with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a true biblical sense, Okay, but then we act like we can manipulate him, that, that if we sing the right way, pray the right way, stand the right way, do our own little routine, that somehow we can get him to do what he wants and show up and bring and fall on us. And the whole time he's inside of us. The whole time he's inside of us. And dare I say, even when you acknowledge the presence of God, it is not there with all due respect, he is not there just merely for your own spiritual titillation. He is there to empower you to live and speak and act like Jesus Christ. Right on. That's a serious alarm. Hey, anybody have a theme music going on? Man, that's some serious stuff, John. You caused the alarm to go off. Apparently, that Indian rain dance works. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah! I'll remember that next time, man. If everybody starts falling asleep, I'll start, hey, 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 get you guys to pay attention one way or another. But that's right. Anyway, hey, that's pretty exciting. Well, uh, somebody uh, sing some theme music. I'm going to try to press a couple buttons here. Just in time, that's right. We are back in action on the spirit-filled life. Woo! Had to clean out your pipes. But uh, that's right. And one last thing again, as we saw, we, there's four things that we do, and we think that he's a force. When he's not, he's a person. Okay, you can't grieve a force. Okay, he's not outside of us on the backside of Pluto. He's with us wherever we go. It's a permanent indwelling. We're not going to scare him away. Okay, and we cannot manipulate him with some sort of religious Christian technique, and somehow he's going to show up on the scene when he's already there. Okay, now here's the whole point, and hopefully I didn't mess up my exciting illustrations. Now, let me give you a visual, okay? And this is actually based off John chapter 4, verse 14, okay, where Jesus is talking about the, the, the Spirit of God. He says this, he says, But whoever takes a drink of the water, which I shall give him, shall positively, this is the Greek, shall positively not thirst, no, never. But the water which I shall give him shall become in him a spring of water gushing up into eternal life. Okay, 
So notice the analogy that Jesus is giving there is a spring or a well. And it's gushing up. Okay, you're not going to thirst. The Spirit of God is going to be within you. And so if you will, this is my exciting draw. It's not a volcano. It's a geyser. See, if it's a volcano, I'd draw it longer. But it's a geyser, in case you're wondering. Anyway, so it's a geyser, right? So a geyser has water inside of it. And when the geyser cuts loose, it comes from within and goes out this way, right? Now, our mentality when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we forget that he's not a force. He's not outside of us. And he is permanent. And we can't manipulate him. We act like he is that Indian rain dance. Like he's some sort of cloud floating up in the sky. And if we do the right things, then he'll fall on us. No. He's a spring of what he comes from. Like this. Now, I said all that to get this. This, I'm going to give you another scenario of this analogy. The spirit-controlled life is the Christian with his soul, his mind, his will, and his motion that is controlled by this sphere, the spirit of God. And as we saw before, this is why it's important to be in the word of God, the Bible, in prayer, fellowship, dare I say, godly, and witnessing. Why? Because at that point, what are you doing? You're doing the things of God. You're thinking the things of God. You're walking in the things of God. You're living in the things of God right? You're keeping in step of the things of God. That's all the Christian ease. You're under the control. A, how do you become a mature Christian? You're a Christian who's under the Spirit's control. How do you do that? It's when you live in this sphere. You can, though, unfortunately, though, be, because there's a decision to be made every single day, Romans chapter 6, Paul says, this is your choice. You're going to be an instrument of wickedness, or you're going to be an instrument of righteousness. And it happens moment by moment, every single day, 24-7. The more that you're under the control of this sphere, Okay, the more you experience the fruit of the Spirit, the more you become mature, the more you start to, over time, become like Jesus Christ, conformed to his image. You act like him, you speak like him. He is the one who's empowering you by his Spirit to do that. Or you can be a born-again Christian in the negative sense and act like a fleshly or a worldly Christian, and that is, you have, you, with all due respect, you may not know how all this works because of the Christianese or you weren't taught, and you're still muddling around in this realm. You're still, even though you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, you don't know how to, if you will, uh, be under his control because you are still working under this sphere. That's a worldly Christian, the Bible calls, a fleshly Christian. Now, let me give you a deal. The more that we moment by moment, day by day, yield to the Spirit of God and what he says to do, and dare I say, these are the things that we need to do to keep our mind focused on him so that when he speaks, we're listening, right? Instead of in la-la land, the more that we, we do that, that leads to maturity. Got it? We think maturity is somehow something that's on the external. It's not. It's an internal thing. Let me give you a deal. What I just described to you this, the more that this happens, the Spirit of God begins to, if you will, it, he moves through your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions, and it starts to reflect in the way you live in your body. That's how it works. Okay, that's the, out, that's the geyser effect. Maturity does not happen in asking the Holy Spirit, even though he's already right there, to somehow penetrate us from the outside. It's, we got it completely opposite. It's like the unfortunate uh, scenario of like the Poseidon adventure. I never saw the new one, the classic one. What was that lady's name that died, the swimmer? Yeah, Shelly Winters, man. <laughs> Very emotional. But anyway, so, uh, but if you saw, there was that one scene. There was that one scene where everybody's trying to get out. There's a few survivors, right? And they get in the hallway there, and all of a sudden, a larger crowd of people, there was what, maybe a half dozen of the other ones, and they're going up this way. And remember that scene where all of a sudden, the other people 
came and they said, they, they were trying to convince him that they were going the wrong way. He says, no, you guys are going the wrong way. No, don't go, no, if you go down, you're gonna die, no! And they wouldn't listen and they went, right? And of course they obviously died. They went the wrong way. It's the same thing. Christians, we are going the wrong way when we don't watch our verbiage, when we think the Holy Spirit is some sort of electrical force or he's outside of us, he's not permanent, and he's on the backside of Pluto, and then we have to somehow do all this Christian-y stuff to manipulate him to try to penetrate us outside. It's the Poseidon, we're going the wrong direction. No wonder we're not maturing. No wonder we read the Bible in one hand, we look at our life in the other and going, why isn't, how come I don't experience that supernatural joy and strength and wisdom when it's needed? Why am I just muddling around? Maybe you're going the wrong direction. And you need to start to deal with this internally. It's a matter of the heart. Yield to his control and he starts to take over and he begins to reflect in your life outwardly that way. Let me give you one example then we'll continue on. This to me is the ultimate daily, moment by moment choice we need to make with our minds, with our souls, if we're going to have a spirit-controlled life. It's the classic analogy. There's a story of a little girl who was in a church service and the offering was being taken and it eventually came around to her. But she paused for a moment as the offering plate was handed to her and uh, suddenly she grabbed it, she put it on the floor and she stepped into the plate with both feet. And then the amazed usher asked her, what in the world is she doing? To which she replied, she says, sir, I, I don't have any money, but I give all that I am to my Lord. That's not a one-time event. You want true maturity in the Christian life? It's not just one time when you prayed a prayer and said, Jesus, would you please save me? Don't ever get off your knees, so to speak. It's a constant dependency upon him God, I, all that I am, I give to you. I'm not getting out of the offering plate. Every day, this day, this moment of the day, this hour of the day, this second of the day, every day is an offering unto you. Use me, speak through me, empower me. Use this life, cause me to do your will. I'm your instrument of righteousness. I don't want to be an instrument of wickedness. Here I am. Not a one-time event. It's a continual day-by-day moment as you yield to him internally, don't try to trick him externally to fall on me because it ain't gonna happen. You'll never mature. Okay, you got it? You get all that? Hey, that's exciting. Let's now move on. What is true spiritual maturity uh, is the next section there. Uh, well, as we saw, believe it or not, this is how it happens through being controlled by the spirit of God. This is how it does not happen. See, this is all internal, what we're talking about tonight. That's internal thinking. Okay, if I can spell it. Okay, but oftentimes we play the little Christian games and we act like, and sometimes we judge somebody uh, uh, on their uh, uh, spirituality based on the external. Because we all know that a real mature Christian is that Christian who squints one eye when they look at you. Because, man, that's spiritual, right? It kind of creeped me out personally, but that's, hey, yeah. Or no, no, it's true spiritual Christian. You guys know the external signs, right? It's when somebody, they pray just like this. And they breathe just like this too. They sigh. Yes. And Tom, here's how they practice at home when nobody's looking. You take a lifesaver, right? It's a circle. You put it in your mouth because that makes you practice getting that just right. So that when it's time for church services and you appear on the scene, and then if you really want to get spiritual, do that with one eye squinted. And then the ultimate spiritual person is do that, squint one eye, okay, fold your hands, 
and, and do this. Oh, thine, their Lord, their valley, thine, thou be thine. How many times when you got over a brand new Christian, you run across those folks, and you didn't know better. Next thing you know, you started doing that. Oh, thy, thou, thee. Well, I guess that's how you're supposed to pray. Start sounding like a slea sack or something from that show. But anyway, but <laughs> what? See, that's all external focus. Can I tell you? Here, here's the real obvious sign. See, that's how distracted we are. We don't know anything, it seems like, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we're so distracted. Here's an obvious sign. Not, okay? That you're a spiritual, mature Christian. It's when you start acting like Jesus. When you love your enemies. When you pray for those from the heart, those who persecute you. It's when you purposely pray and ask God's blessings upon those who abuse you and despitefully use you and, and curse you and say all kinds of things against you falsely. That's a mature Christian. It's a Christian who you don't have to have their arms twisted to read the Bible. They're encouraging you to do it. You don't have to beg them to pray every day. You don't have to sit there, hey, can we hang out once in a while and, and talk about Jesus? And they're the ones leading the way, witnessing to the lost. And nobody had to give them a sermon. You get under the control of the Holy Spirit, man, it's exciting. But it's an internal work. But the problem with the church, and I think it's spiritual warfare, we think the whole thing happens outside of us. And it's not. It's internally as we yield to him moment by moment like the girl in the offering plate. Okay? What is true maturity? What does it mean to be spiritual? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 states, But he who is spiritual praises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. This is a description of the spiritual man. The Greek word translated appraise here is anakrino, which means uh, uh, to examine, to, it's used of judicial hearings, to conduct an examination, to examine and judge, to call to account or to discern, take your pick. Uh, the spiritual man is able to examine and judge all things on the basis of God's perfect moral standard. That's the code word for the Bible. Okay, he knows the scripture. Okay, that's the basis of standard. Uh, but he is not understood by others, i.e. the natural man, which is a non-Christian. Okay, since the actions and attitudes of the spiritual man, the Christian, are, quote, foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or understood. Okay, if the, believer, uh, the, if the spiritual believer judges or examines or discerns all things, then spiritually means a mature yet maturing relationship with God. Spirituality involves three things. Number one, you can't mature as a Christian if you're not a Christian. Right? And it sounds kind of basic, but folks, did you know there's a lot of people who go to church services who still need to be born again? Why are there so many problems in church services across America? Because I think the American church is flooded with a lot of people who are acting like Christians, who thinks it's an external gig, and if I just try to follow in my own strength the Ten Commandments and try to be honest with my taxes and not beat my dog too much, then I'm a Christian. And you wonder why churches are oftentimes messed up. Because they still need, they don't have the Spirit of God in them, Okay. But true spiritual maturity begins with three things. Number one, regeneration. 
is your great Christianese phrase there. Can I explain that for you? Because that's a Christianese word, regeneration. That is when you become born again at the moment of salvation. That's what it is. You become spiritually alive. He regenerates you is where they get that, okay? But you become alive spiritually. That's why after you become born again, all of a sudden you have a desire to read the Bible. All of a sudden you have a desire. I want to talk, quote unquote, pray to God. I want to hang out with other people who are also Christians. You know, those things that weren't there before. Ooh, ah, sin's starting to bug me now. Before, who cares? That's what happens, okay? So number one, as basic as it is, you need to be regenerated. You need to be born again if you're going to mature, okay, uh, to receive the new life of Christ, which occurs at salvation. Number two, you need to be spirit-filled. Again, can I encourage you? Put the word control there, spirit-controlled. Because I'm telling you, we've got this external mindset when you say, fill, fill my cup, Lord. Really? No, he, again, he's not outside of us, and we're getting low on him, our tank's getting dry, and we need more. Whoa! It's we need to get out of the way and yield to him as he moves out through us. Got it? Okay. But we need to have the spirit control, which we'll discuss in this lesson. And three time. Takes time, doesn't it? How many guys glad that God accepts us for who we are, where we are, no matter what we've done when we first got saved? Anybody glad? Because that's the gospel. It's not clean up your act and then come to Jesus. That's a stumbling block that some people do. Well, you can't come in here because your hair is too long. You know what I'm saying? Man, look at them clothes. You know what I'm saying? I, I won't go there, John. But anyway, so I never... <laughs> I was doing the hair thing. But anyway, so, hey, I'm in trouble now. Backstroke, backstroke. What do we do now? Uh, anyway, so... Um, <laughs> anyway, so, but uh, we, we say, oh, no, you can't do it. Well, hey, listen, I saw you out there. You know, I just saw, I just saw you. You were, you were out there smoking in the parking lot. You can't come in here. You know, hey, listen, I smell alcohol in your breath. You, you better go you, you get cleaned up, get, get sober before you get back in here. To Excuse me? I'm not condoning that behavior. But Christianity is not clean up your act and then come to Christ. He accepts us for who we are, what we are, whatever we've done. And then, now here's the rest of that phrase. How many are glad that he accepts us for who we are, what we are, no matter what we've done, but he loves us so much he doesn't leave us there? Now, what is that called? It's called time. It takes time, doesn't it? Have you guys noticed that over time, hopefully, prayerfully, you're starting to look a little bit more like Jesus, starting to act a little bit more like him, a little, teeny, little, maybe, maybe not quite as much sin as it was 933 years ago. Hopefully it's been better than that, but, but do you see what I'm saying? And notice the more that sin is out of your life, and you're more controlled of the Spirit, it's a good life, isn't it? And again, name one commandment that's bad for us. When we're controlled by the Spirit, bring on the joy, man. Bring on the peace. Bring it on. This is awesome. Self-control. That's where you get the ability to say no to sin. It's the Spirit of God as He controls you. Aren't you glad? Isn't that something we should be all striving for? Well, that's the code word for maturity, but it takes time. The Bible uses analogies uh, as babes, that we're babes in Christ when we're first saved, right? Now, babies, when they're first saved, they make a lot of stinkies, right? Messes right there, right? Christians, if you notice that a brand new Christian, that's another thing. If you're discipling somebody, hey, give them some space. I'm not saying condone the word, but man, don't, come, don't bring the hammer down on them. Did you forget? <laughs> Did you pop out of the, the spiritual womb, so to speak? Aha! well then you better start growing because that ain't spirituality it takes time 
Babies make messes. Babies need a lot of care. They need a lot of nurturing. They have to wear diapers for a while. They need somebody to teach them how to walk. But over time, they begin to grow and mature into adults, right? It's the same thing spiritually. So we need to understand our audience. We need to understand who we work with. Babies, when you feed them, they start off with milk. And that's what the Bible says. You need to pure the, uh, the, the milk, the pure milk, the word of God, okay? When you first get saved, get into it, man. Start, okay, but you don't stay there. Then eventually you need to go, and as you know with babies, how many guys were glad when that first time when finally your kid could eat something solid so they could sleep more than five seconds, right? How many guys cheated and fed it to them earlier? I know you're out there. But you move from milk and then to mush and then eventually you go to meat, right? And I said all that to this because if you're discipling somebody and they're a brand new baby Christian, you need to understand who you're working with. Don't try to cram meat down them when all they can do is barely swallow milk. But here's, don't get the other end of the spectrum because I think churches do this, unfortunately. That's all they do give their Christians is milk. They never give them any mush and you certainly don't get meat. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Don't talk about theology. Don't talk about hell or wrath. Don't talk about that. Are you kidding me? Let's talk about grace. God's love. And that's great. But you know what? There's a lot more stuff in there. You need that process of maturity, but all that takes time. You go from milk to mush to meat. Okay, that's the process of maturity. If the spiritual person judges or examines or discerns all things, this must involve time in order to gain knowledge and to acquire experience by discerning all things. Okay, and that's right. Next week, we'll continue on with what does it mean to be spirit controlled? When should I be spirit controlled? How can I be filled by the spirit? And uh, things that you don't want to do when it comes to the Holy Spirit, like grieve him or quench him. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, if we dare get that far. If Maybe we can pray hard enough. But anyway, let's go ahead and pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this. We don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments uh, the ninth one says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. 
And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please. Take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church.
If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.